This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. A recent report by Goldman Sachs says the chances of the Canadian housing market bursting are about one in three. It was part of a review of worldwide economies right now. New Zealand was actually seen at the top of the list with a 40 percent chance of seeing its housing market come apart. Sweden was also near the top of the list. Sachs says prices seem to be overvalued right now with credit growth on the rise in Canada. To take a look at these issues and more, we welcome in Cynthia Holmes, Assistant Professor and Chair of the Real Estate Management Department at Ryerson University in Toronto. She joins us by phone and in studio, Benjamin Keyes, Assistant Professor in the Real Estate Department here at the Wharton School. Ben, great seeing you again. Yeah, thanks for having me. Cynthia, great to have you joining us today. Thank you. Uh, you are there in Canada, so give us the, the, the latest. What What is the concern level right now? Well, across Canada, many cities in Canada are just chugging along unremarkably, but this is really a story of two cities in Canada, Vancouver and Toronto. These two cities have seen very high house price growth over the past year. What has really driven that? Well, it's difficult to say. Some people um, think that there are speculators in the market who are starting to uh, purchase homes for investment purposes, not for consumption, and this drives up demand somewhat artificially, um, inflating prices. Uh, Others just point to the fact that both Toronto and Vancouver are extremely lovely places to live. Uh, We have high levels of immigration and high levels of population growth, and so it's possible that some of our demand is just being driven by uh, true uh, fundamental factors. Which, Ben, it's a couple of the factors that we have talked about here uh, of how the housing market in the U.S. has gone. Obviously, the prices in cities like San Francisco have really been on the rise the last couple of years, Uh, but also the want of people to live in urban locations, and Toronto and Vancouver certainly fall into that category. Yeah, we've seen the sort of rise of what what have been called superstar cities in the U.S. and the sort of attraction of a few uh, specific uh, metro areas where we're seeing, um, you know, the sort of improvements of amenities and the improvements of um, of the sort of uh, jobs that can that can be found in those locations, and so the popularity of a few specific cities is sort of dominating the uh, the landscape for where young professionals want to locate and where businesses want to try to find those dynamic employees, and so that might lead to a greater concentration in just a few locations. Cynthia, is the is the correlation with San Francisco a fairly accurate one? And and I mentioned that because I recently saw an article where Toronto uh, saw their median price go over a million dollars Canadian, I believe, uh, a couple of weeks ago for the first time ever, correct? Yes, that is correct. And I do agree. I think that Toronto and Vancouver uh, are both these cities that uh, make it to the top of the most livable cities in the world kind of list. Um, Our economies are strong across Canada, but specifically in those two cities, uh, good employment levels. So they're really attractive cities. And in Toronto and Vancouver in particular, uh, these are the gateway cities for our strong body of immigrants that are arriving in Canada um, from China, the Middle East, Southeast Asia. And so these sort of dynamic immigrants are settling in these cities, buying houses, and um, making this city really great places to live. So as you look at the market in general, I mean, obviously Toronto and Vancouver, as you mentioned, are kind of leading the pack right now. But uh, is the market fairly affordable in general across Canada at this time? Across, excluding those two cities, yes, it's quite affordable. Uh, we have our two large cities in Alberta, Calgary and Edmonton. Um, those have not seen dramatic house price increases. In fact, prices have been very stable there. 
uh, prices there are driven in large part by oil sector profits. Those yeah. are that's the key industry in that area, and those prices there are affordable. Um, other neighborhoods, other large cities like Montreal, for example, our second largest city in Canada, that has population growing at a more modest rate, and house prices also growing at a modest rate. And housing is avail- is is affordable in these sort of cities. Ben, when you when you go through this report and, and you hear Canada with a thirty three percent chance. To, to you know to have a, a bursting of the bubble what's your reaction to that yeah i mean the, f- the first thing is to sort of place this in a broader global context I mean, you mentioned at the top uh new zealand and and sweden were actually the yeah. other two countries that were in that category if you look at where a lot of investment has been coming from a lot of it's coming from asia and so you sort of see this around you know the pacific rim more broadly a lot of um, asian investors from china and and south korea um, other countries investing in places like New Zealand, Australia, uh, the West Coast of the U.S. and, and Canada. And that kind of influx is, is you know, partly um, motivated by looking for safe investments. It's partly looking for um, safe, safe places to store money outside of the country, right. um, physical assets that are difficult to, to re, uh, re, you know, repatriate or, or bring back in. So it's a, it can be a, a way to hide um, hide wealth and hide assets, and I think this is one of the real challenges. Is um, you know, housing is this physical, durable asset, and we know that putting a lot of money into um, into developing housing is is very expensive. And we know from the U.S. experience that it can be very distortionary to the broader economy. Yeah, and so we worry that these kind of investments that are really about putting your money in a safe place, not necessarily living in those locations, um, as a lot of the stories about Vancouver have suggested that many of the um, new developments have, are actually sitting empty by uh, investors who are yeah. who are holding those, and so the, the real worry is that this just sort of distorts the re- the real economy um, by by you know speculating in a in a physical asset. Uh, is the expectation, Cynthia, that that uh, that the concerns you're seeing up there? Uh, I, I mean, w- when you look at the data points that that this report brings out, and probably other reports that that you have seen as well. We think, you know, in the fairly recent past about what happened here in the U.S., maybe a little bit of a different uh, dynamic uh, at at play. But still, the concerns of what the housing crash was here in the U.S., you know, could they potentially play out in Canada? Well, I think there's one fundamental difference between the United States in 2007 and Canada today, and that's related to um, mortgage lending, capital and debt. So in Canada, we never saw the development of the subprime mortgage market. Right. And we, in fact, have a relatively conservative sort of lending policies. Uh, and our lending is dominated by six very large national banks. Um, and those large banks tend to conform to the uh, the policies set out by the Canadian government because the Canadian government insurer tends to drive the mortgage insurance company tends to drive it. So we have much more conservative lending, and we also have very, very low mortgage default rates here in Canada. For example, um, rates default rates are always less than 1%, basically. Wow. So it's 0.6% or something. Even in our, quote, subprime lenders or these alternative lenders, we still see extremely low default rates. So fundamentally, in my view, when we think about what sort of drove the the uh, American house price bubble and deflation. To me, part of the story is certainly about this growth in subprime lending, these delinquencies that started happening in subprime lending, 
And when these delinquencies started happening in the U.S., um, investors uh, sort of pulled out of the market. And so this sort of led to these house price declines, further exacerbating subprime defaults and so forth. That certainly won't be the story here in Canada because we don't have um, a tradition of, you know, 100% borrowing or interest-only loans or subprime loans. So that, I think, is one key fundamental difference between the two economies. Um, a second point I think that's worth mentioning is that in both um, Vancouver and in Ontario, which is the province, of course, where Toronto is located, um, government have put in policies taxing foreign buyers of real estate. Yeah. Um, so these sort of policies are specifically to address the point that Ben made about how it's possible that, you know, foreign buyers, and in Vancouver the story is about Chinese buyers in particular, who are um, purchasing as a safe investment for their family um, and not really participating in the market in the same way, and it's their, their pricing and their purchasing is not driven by these fundamental factors in the same way. So last summer... Um, Vancouver put this tax into place, and it did serve to decrease the number of transactions that was taking place in the Vancouver market, right. um, albeit temporarily, frankly. Um, and in Toronto, we just had one implemented last month, uh, a, t- uh, a tax on foreign buyers. I, th- I think these are these are all great points, Cynthia. I think you really highlight, to me, the, the lessons that, that I think the Canadian government learned from from the U.S., uh, the lessons of the, of the U.S., uh, experience and that the you know sort of broader macro prudential policy has been really consistently um, in the direction of you know uh, oversight and, and monitoring of, of the housing market and continuing to to ratchet down lending standards when things looked like um, looked like they might get kind of frothy and so uh, it's sort of been wave after wave of um, of smart Canadian policy making to um, to tighten some of the lending restrictions um, you know the, the challenge there of course is affordability that on the one hand you have um, prices being driven up by uh, potentially, uh, you know, external investors, and on the other yeah. hand, you have, um, you know, increasing challenges to to qualify for a mortgage in these higher price markets, and so that sort of leads to to me wondering uh, about affordability for sort of first time home buyers or um, lower income home buyers, and are they finding uh, finding it significantly harder to to access these markets? Well, I'd be interested to know, uh, Cynthia. Obviously, you mentioned before. With the uh, influx uh, of people coming from other countries, uh, what is that? What has that impact been on the uh, the general economy uh, in Canada, especially in the last you know twelve months or so? Uh, positive. Uh, basically, yeah. in Canada, we have a relatively low net natural increase in our population, lower fertility rates than, for example, the U.S. and many other countries. So, uh, Canada's dynamism comes from its immigrants. So, uh, basically, we have been um, uh, relying on immigrants to to fuel population growth and GDP growth in our economy. 844-942-7866 is the number if you'd like to give us a call. Join in 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. You can also use at Wharton knows if you'd like to as well. Since Cynthia, I'll ask the question I asked Ben a few minutes ago. What is your reaction then to this report uh, by Goldman Sachs in general? 
Well, I also looked at um, the Goldman Sachs reports and also broadly at um, IMF that tracks the trends. And we do see that if you're a bubble hunter and bubble, you know, a house price bubble hunter, uh, the way you look for bubbles is with these a variety of ratios that are not terribly sophisticated, but broadly can give you some idea. So we see things like, for example, the house price to income ratio, which is a measure of um, comparing, you know, the household income against how much uh, you can afford. And we used to see numbers like three was something that was, um, you know, you buy a house for three times your family income. But these numbers, three happened a long time ago in Vancouver and Toronto, and the numbers are growing rapidly. And when we look at, for example, the IMF that publishes these international statistics, we see New Zealand, Austria, Germany, and Sweden dominating in terms of having very, very high house price-to-income ratios. And Canada is still high, much higher than yeah. the U.S. Um, so uh, these are all some cause for concern. Um, things like also price-to-rent ratio and a variety of other measures that help you try to nail down whether there is, in fact, a bubble that might burst. Well, is there a, is there a renting kind of renaissance going on in Canada right now, like we have seen here in the U.S. the last couple of years? Yes. So in Canada, you know, uh, in the U.S., you had uh, uh, this um, homeownership rate that was relatively high and then popped right down after your crisis. In Canada, we didn't see the same sort of volatility, but certainly in our large cities, we have um, uh, rental taking place. The Toronto story is that a lot of the new construction being built is condominium towers in the center city, um, and then uh, investors in these condos are renting them out. So a lot of times our rental market is being supplied by these condo units that have been constructed. So that's sort of the story that we're seeing here. And certainly for young people um, who are just starting out, the uh, plus million dollar house prices are not affordable. And so we're seeing a lot of young people who will rent a condo um, yeah. for some years as part of their initial sort of housing option. And that's obviously been been, been a, a very much a key component of the U.S. market, especially the last few years, because of the fact that the millennials are, are waiting a little bit longer to actually physically buy that house. They'd rather rent and try and save up a little bit so that when they do buy, they're not carrying, I guess, not carrying as much debt on the house. That's right. Yeah. High, high house prices and you know more restrictive lending practices have certainly made um, younger, younger families um, more reluctant to buy, uh, more likely to rent. I think one, one of the challenges in an, an environment with um, a lot of investors is whether those investors are actually putting uh, the properties on the market for rental or not, or whether it's just a contraction of available supply. So um, in Toronto, if, if um, investors are actually renting out their spaces, um, then that's going to add to the, to the supply of rental units and hopefully drive down rental prices. But the you know, anecdotes in, in Vancouver suggest a lot of folks buying up properties and not renting them out, sort yeah. of the space sitting dark. Um, and in that case, then you don't get the benefits of the additional supply. It just removes units from the market. So I think, you know, in, in thinking about younger, uh, younger families getting started, um, it's really a question of whether those investment properties are being put uh, onto the open market. Well, Cynthia, I'll let you respond to the Toronto piece to that. I mean, are these are these properties being invested by uh, foreign buyers? Are they actually on the market, or are they sitting uh, sitting dark in some cases? Well, you know, it, there's not great data for us to know the precise answer to that question. Right. Um, in Vancouver, they, uh, the policymakers were suspicious that this would be the case, and so they enacted this empty homes tax, which means that basically there, if, you're, if you have a unit that's vacant uh, for, 12, for more than six months out of 12, then you have to pay a tax. 
So again, you, yeah. uh, the government using tax policy to try to do that. So there's some question about enforcement and collection and so forth. But we are starting to see in Vancouver where the media and others are starting to say, hey, reminder, you have to get a tenant in by July or else you're going to be subject to this empty homes tax if you do have a unit. So it is possible that we'll see a flurry of units in Vancouver um, uh, come on the market for rental so that the investors can avoid this sort of taxation. So um, that will be good data. We'll, we'll learn soon, really, whether there is this little spurt of units coming on, on, on board the market or not. So what you're saying is we could have a free-for-all for properties in, in Vancouver in the next six weeks. <laughs> it could be. They have to get a tenant in by July 1st in order to avoid the tax. So. It, it is an interesting kind of uh, philosophy to go that way. I mean, when you think about uh, some of the things that the Canadian market is trying to do right now, uh, are, are there pieces to it that, that maybe the U.S. market hasn't addressed and maybe we, we probably should? Ben? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, it's a much more active uh, um, market in, in both sort of federal and, and local ways. So. So Cynthia highlighted some of the different tax policies that have been put in place. Um, you know, given the, the, the banking concentration in, in Canada and the role of a, of a uh, government uh, mortgage insurer, I think that's led to a lot more um, control and oversight in ways that I don't think, um, you know, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were as willing to, to sort of actively try to, um, you know, take some of the air out of, out of the bubble. So I think, you know, it's interesting, in the, you know, in the U.S., we, we – you know, we have a, a lot of property sales to foreigners as well. Um, you know, it's estimated over a hundred billion dollars was um, purchased by foreigners yeah. um, in 2015. So, you know, there, there's a lot of activity here as well. And I think that's uh, you know certainly been a discussion related to say the the upper end of the New York condo market. How sensitive is that to to foreign buyers or um, the, Mi- the Miami? Miami. Yep. The Miami market. Um, and again, you know, you you sort of think about what are the motivations for these investors and. And are these investments, um, you know, sort of productive in a way that that actually helps the the local residents, or is this just a way that is sort of distortionary? Are these people just looking for the safest asset, and this is sort of a flight to safety? In which case, we have this distortionary problem. Well, does uh, Cynthia does Va- Vancouver benefit to a degree just literally from its location uh, and and the proximity to the Asian market right now? I mean, it is you know if if you're looking to invest in Canada, coming from that part of the world, it's the first place that that you're going to find as you hit the uh, as you hit the land. That's right. The Europeans hit the East Coast, you know, and uh, and uh, so I think it is. And uh, Vancouver, I lived there for many years, and it is um, it's a really vibrant. It's a lovely place and if you haven't visited you know ocean mountains it's gorgeous yeah. um, and great universities and so uh, when I was at UBC we could see that there was students international students coming from China and other places in Asia um, and um, yes I think that it's it's an attractive city broadly and it is uh, quite a Chinese friendly city because the po- proportion of the population is quite high um, that, so there's a community as well, and I think that that's, uh, this diaspora tends to uh, make it more comfortable for further immigrants to arrive. So absolutely, it, it, I think that we're seeing that. It probably it also fits in with the fact that Seattle is kind of that same way as well, correct? Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. And it makes sense. And, uh, you know, and up, up and down the West Coast, basically, and to California as well, I think. We're joined uh, on the phone by Cynthia Holmes of uh, Ryerson University in Toronto, Benjamin Keyes uh, of the Wharton School, joining me here in the studio. The way for you to comment is 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Outside of Vancouver and Toronto, Cynthia, uh, you mentioned some of the other cities like Calgary and Edmonton and and Montreal, uh, which are seeing, I guess, incremental growth uh, at this point. But is there enough in the marketplace right now and with the immigration uh, and the economy to, to expect to be able to see similar type of growth in the future, similar to what you're seeing in Toronto and Vancouver? Well, one one speculation could be that when we saw the foreign uh, buyers tax implemented in Vancouver, that the speculation was that buyers were going to move to Toronto, where there was no tax. Right. And now that there is also a tax in Toronto that came in last month, um, people are speculating that the foreign buyers may go look for a third city where there is no tax, and that city would be perhaps Montreal, which is you know a lovely city with really affordable prices. Um, and, um, again, a world-class city. So it is possible that, you know, uh, this tax, we have to keep, you know, taxing uh, to try to stay ahead of uh, where the, um, the investor-slash-speculator market wants to travel. So, um, But Montreal has this situation where uh, French is the first language, and so perhaps that yep. is not something that um, the foreign investors would uh, think about as, quickly as uh, so maybe Calgary would be the next target. So it is definitely possible that foreign money could shift uh, is now taxed out of uh, Toronto and Vancouver and, and looks for other places within Canada. And it's interesting that, you know, foreign capital is extremely mobile and extremely fickle, right? Yeah. And so, you know, it's very sensitive to, um, to, to things like changing exchange rates, changing taxes. Um, you know, the Canadian market um, has certainly benefited because of the relatively weak um, Canadian dollar um, relative to, say, China or, or, or South Korea from, from just a few years ago. And right. so, um, so you really worry about the sensitivity of these kinds of, of big capital flows um, moving around um, so dramatically. And you, and you just worry again about the, the fact that they're investing in something that's very physical and that's very durable, right? And so if you do a lot of building, um, in sort of response to this type of speculation, and then um, you know the whims of uh, global investors change. Then all of a sudden, you have uh, these huge condo towers with with no one to use them. So I think there's a real challenge there in sort of uh, making sure that we keep the incentives aligned, um, and you know potentially offering um, you know investors alternatives <laughs> to to these types of um, physical investments, uh, maybe synthetic. Um, investments that might be right. better places to plant their money for a little while. Uh, Cynthia, what is the expectation? Obviously, uh, one of the big stories recently has been uh, the relationship between the U.S. and Canada, and obviously the potential of a of a shift on NAFTA. How much of a factor could it be on the housing market if the if the relationship changes significantly, obviously the, the softwood uh, concern uh, has been there now for uh, the last month or so. Well, absolutely. Certainly the U.S. is our largest trading partner, and um, things like the American interest rates, when they change, that affects the Canadian market. Uh, our, our Canadian economy is very, very closely linked to the U.S., and our economy is um, dependent on uh, tra trade with the U.S. So if there is renegotiation of NAFTA, then it certainly could be um, 
both good or bad for Canada. Right. So there is some idea that maybe if we're going to open a renegotiation of NAFTA, um, the idea is maybe we can get some wins and the U.S. can get some wins and maybe, maybe it'll all work out okay. Um, so will there even be a renegotiation? So it's, it seems very, the political climate in the U.S. seems very uncertain um, from our point of view. Right. Uh, so, but there is this broad general idea that um, we have to be concerned about what's happening in the U.S. because it really does affect, uh, affect Canada very broadly. Ben? Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I totally agree with Cynthia. I think it's far too uncertain at this point to, to think that we're going to see a a dramatic renegotiation that would really shift the scales in one direction uh, or the other. I think there's uh, there are a lot of people who really depend on the the trading that that's done between the two countries, and yeah. so to disrupt that dramatically over you know the the whims of a brief statement or two. I mean that's a you know renegotiating something like that would take years. How much though, Cynthia? Did did the Canadian market really kind of learn off of what happened here in the U.S. a few years ago to try and make sure that that the same type of thing did not happen there that we saw here in the U.S. Well, I think the most the the, the key factor is how we just never went down the road to broad um, uh, subprime lending. So, um, in fact, some of the American subprime lenders had set up in Canada in 2006, 2007 and started doing similar type of lending to Canadians. But then when the U.S. market crashed, then these lenders sort of exited the Canadian market, and we really didn't have that. And so I think that, broadly speaking, one of the most important factors, and Ben emphasized it as well, is that the Canadian uh, federal government, the national-level government, um, really does have the ability to set these um, underwriting standards that the big banks follow, and most Canadians tend to fall under it. And so uh, I think that that was our key lesson, which is don't relax our underwriting standards too much. I think that's what the Canadian policymakers took from the um, unfortunate American circumstances. It's funny because the government steps in and kind of lays this path out, and, and to a degree, it's just a mindset. And they are following the path of that, of that mindset in Canada, whereas here in the U.S., obviously, the, the banks kind of called their own game. And that's, you know, how we ended up with uh, uh, with all the, the bad loans that we saw, the subprime mark, uh, mortgage market, and, uh, and where the mess that a lot of people, to a degree, some of them are still kind of getting out of today. Sure. I mean, we've talked about this recently, the number of, uh, of places around the country where prices still haven't reached uh, their 2007 levels. And I think... You know, this really just speaks to the challenges of a segmented market, you know, yeah. between the public sector and the private sector. And there are certainly, you know, a lot of advantages to having some more concentrated con government control over a market that um, that has these types of um, cycles sort of baked into them. I and mean, yeah. we just know this about durable housing, that it's going to be cyclical. And so, you know, it might be sensible to have more more government control rather than less. But I think you know, there's there's also the sort of pushback against that, and in, in, as far as private risk taking, and um, and you know, so how much of this should we really you know allow for the government to to be involved in and be exposed to? And I think that's you know, con sort of the Canadian model has has uh, staked out one end of that claim with yeah. a, um, you know, there are the banks that that do operate are are operating um, you know in a private capacity, but on top of that, you have this strong government regulator and a government uh, national mortgage insurer. And so right. that really, uh, you know, just changes the rules of the road. Great having you both with us. Uh, great seeing you again, Ben. Thank you for coming in. Thanks. Cynthia, great to have you on the phone today. Greatly appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Cynthia Holmes from Ryerson University in Toronto. Benjamin Keyes here from the Wharton School. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.